Thank you for being here. If you're a visitor, after the service, there's two things you can do. One is if you want to learn more about the church, there are people out front in the lobby that can help you. And if you want prayer, we have people down here that will pray with you. So after our last song, just wait a moment, come down here, and we would love to pray with you. If you'd like to pray by yourself, there's room here as well. But please remember, after every service, there's opportunity to pray in the front, learn about the church in the back. And please don't leave without interacting with God and with one or two other people as well. Well, we're in the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. We started it last week, and we're going to be in chapter 2. We're going to read one verse in chapter 1. Elizabeth's going to read then the entire part of chapter 2. So if you have your Bible or you have your app, open it up uh, to Mark chapter 1 and 2. Good morning, church family. Read along with me. Chapter 1, beginning in verse 35, and we'll jump down to chapter 2. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. And why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." Now John's disciple and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to them, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. 
And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on the old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And as the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Amen. Thank you, Elizabeth. Four vignettes here in this chapter two I want to talk about today, and some of them are very easy to understand and others are very hard, but I want to mention one thing about the book of Mark, and I want you to look at this on the screen. It says this, the gospel of Mark is more than just a book about Jesus. It is a book about being a disciple of Jesus. This uh, next few months, we're working on discipling here at our church, and we're working on those times. And last, this month, we've been talking about loving and sharing Jesus. In February, we'll be talking about calling, and we're seeing that in the book of Mark. But please understand, the Gospels are about uh, Jesus, but the Gospel of Mark is really about being a disciple of Jesus. What does it take to be a disciple of Jesus? And we're going to look at it. It was interesting this last week, we got some leaders of the church together, and I realized that some of them in different areas didn't know each other from the school and from here at church. And so I said, pair off with one other person and learn about them and then share, you share their story with the group instead of sharing your own story. Well, I obviously knew everybody there. So I picked a friend, Steve Smith, who's the principal of the high school, and Steve and I are talking. And I asked him a question that I didn't know. He and I had worked on advanced degrees similar time a while ago. And I never asked him what he wrote his dissertation on. What did he write the big long paper at the end of your uh, classes on. I said, Steve, what did you write? I had prayed for him through that process. He had prayed for me through my process, but never knew. And he told me he did it on cheating. I said, cheating? You wrote a whole paper on, I mean, we're talking hundreds of pages now, not a 10 page, hundreds of pages on cheating. I said, tell me about cheating and, and specifically cheating in high school. Okay, he's teaching high school, but he did it about college and other things, uh, but it was educational cheating. And he told me all the things which I am not going to tell you about because some of you are still students. It is amazing, <laughs> but what he said was it's an endemic in this country that 
the parents, to the children, to the grandchildren. There's a culture of cheating in this land of ours, especially in education. It's not just in education. It's a lot of things. You're starting to pay your taxes this month, right? You're starting to do those tax returns. There's a culture of cheating in that. I pray that you are not a part of that. There's just a culture of cheating. I remember when I was working uh, at an office, I managed a bunch of offices before I worked here, and one specific office, they were very highly paid people, and yet the toilet paper was being stolen every weekend. <laughs> the toilet paper in the back, in the storage room. These people, and I, I went to them at the next staff meeting after weeks of this, I said, people, I will buy you toilet paper if you need it, but don't steal it. We've got a break, and they were taking it because they lived in a culture of stealing. You just take things. That is called discipleship in the wrong way. We need to be disciples of the right one because we're all following something, someone, some cultural mandate, and I don't want it to be cheating and stealing or anything else. The Bible teaches us, and specifically the book of Mark, among other books, teach us of how to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so as you're reading it, as you're studying it, and as we're going through these over the next two or three months of time, realize what is it I can learn, you, what can you learn about being a disciple? It's not just about us getting more information about Jesus. It's good that you learn the stories about Jesus and the stories about the disciples, but it's very important that you learn how they apply to you. And hopefully we'll learn some of that today and in the coming weeks of time. So there are four things that Jesus dealt with in this book, primarily. We know the stories. The four things are this, lostness. Jesus deals with the sin of people and their lostness. People are lost. Jesus came to seek and to save those who were lost. He also deals with pain, the reality of physical issues that people deal with, whether all these healings or other painful things. He deals with pain and works on that issue of pain. And the third thing he deals with is brokenness, that systems are broken. The systems of this world are broken. And he deals with that through the gospel, and we see this in, in fact through the whole New Testament, in the book of Acts, etc. And then he deals with fourth, restoration. How to be restored in this broken system where you have pain while you are lost. So it's lostness, pain, brokenness, and restoration. Now, as we go into these specific four vignettes, I want you to think of this. Jesus clashed with the scribes and the Pharisees in these four vignettes. Now, the scribes and Pharisees tended to be lay people. They weren't the paid clergy of the day. There were high priests and priests and all that were the paid clergy. They tended to be lay people that the clergy would send out to listen to different people to make sure everybody was doing the right thing. So these people had been assigned to Jesus and they're with Jesus and they're having some real problems. So these are lay people that are doing this. What's interesting is they've believed in authority. They, they wanted to do the right thing. 
And not all Pharisees were bad people, by the way. We have this kind of concept that all Pharisees were bad, and they weren't. There are Pharisees that came to Jesus, and there's several of them named that we'll get to later in the book. I don't want to get off subject today. But we need to realize that the clash that Jesus had with authority was not over the rules, but it was over who ruled. We need to understand that. So when we see the problems that the scribes are saying, they're, they're worried about the rules, obviously, but they're really saying that Jesus is taking authority to rule over things. Later on, he rules over uh, the waters. He rules over sickness. He rules over changing water into wine, over the physical aspects. He rules over the forgiveness of sins. This is an authority issue. So let's begin and look at these four conflicts in chapter two that Jesus has. The first one he has is a conflict over the forgiveness of sins. Now, you know the story. It's a story of a paralyzed man. He wants to go in and see Jesus, uh, and his friends want to get him in there. He's obviously on a uh, cot of some type, a gurney of some type that they were carrying. They couldn't get him into the house, so what they did was they walked on the stairs outside the house. Now you go, then they cut the roof. Now think about this, we know this because they have excavated uh, Capernaum and some of those towns. Most places in Israel had flat roofs, hard flat roofs. We would call it concrete, it wasn't concrete, but it was some material, wood or whatever, so that they could be outside at night because it was hot during, and they could go out in the evening. In Capernaum though, they didn't have that. They had some type of wood structure that had some type of thatch roofing. All the roofs in the city of Capernaum are gone. Now, today. So when we go there with uh, the 30 that are going in a couple of weeks, we'll see the city of Capernaum. You won't see one roof because the roofs were made of materials that were gonna go away. You see all the walls, you see the interiors, you see the doorways you'd see nothing of the roofs. And the reason is they walked up and they cut the roof. We think, oh, my land's cutting the roof here. That's not what they did. They cut thatch, you know, some material of wood and leaves and fawns and things like that and cut it. So nobody was worried that they were ruining the roof. You know, if it was me and all of a sudden something got lowered down here to you, I would be kind of going, the roof. Why? Because we live in Florida and the roof is the most important part of the building because it leaks, right? When you don't have it right, the roof. They're not talking about the roof. They're worrying about what Jesus did. So he comes, he gets them all there. You, you know the story, but don't worry about the roof. We Floridians worry about roofs. It's nothing to do. It said they removed the roof above him in verse four. And when they had made an opening, they let the uh, bed down with a paralytic. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. He didn't heal them. He didn't deal with the pain. He dealt with the lostness. You see, you gotta also deal with the lostness. One of the problems we as Americans love to do, we love to deal with the pain of people. We love to dig wells. We love to do orphanages. We love, and all that's good. I love doing it. I've done my share. I do my share all the time. Elizabeth and I are big into that. But you also gotta deal with the lostness of people. The fact that we are sinners and we need to be saved from sin. 
And I think we never need to forget that. It's all four of these things, lostness, pain, brokenness, and restoration. But this right here, he opens up at the beginning with lostness. And now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. So of course we have Jesus who's, who gets it all. He goes, why? Um, they're saying, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So there's this very early, we're in chapter two, Jesus is claiming to be God and he's acting like God because Jesus is God. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they were questioning within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? And then he says, which is easier, forgiving sins or healing them? And that's an amazing thought, isn't it? Because both are impossible to do. Only God can do this healing. Forgiveness of sin. So he forgives his sin, and then what does he do? He heals them. He says, or say, rise up and take up your bed and walk. But they, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So the man who can deal with lostness, Jesus Christ, is the man who can heal you physically. He doesn't always have to. He doesn't always choose to. And we'll find out later in the book that there are people that come to Jesus for their lostness and walk away lost. Don't think, you know, the rich young ruler and things like that. Jesus can deal with the lostness, but you got to participate as well. But here he heals them. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God. We have seen nothing like this. The point of this is when Jesus is in your midst, you should be glorifying God because of what he's done. Now he goes to the second conflict. This is an interesting one. This is a conflict about associating with the wrong people. So he meets, he's, he's walking along the Sea of Galilee again. He sees Levi. Now let me just pause there. Many people think Levi is Matthew. Okay, there's Matthew, the tax collector, and there's Levi, the tax collector. And Mark doesn't say Levi, who's also known as Matthew. We think it's the same guy, but we're not sure. So is this Levi Matthew of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or is this Levi someone else who wasn't of one of the 12 apostles, but became one of the disciples of Christ, one of the 70? We're not sure, nor is it important, but he comes to Christ. He leaves his tax collecting booth and comes and follows Jesus. Now, just quickly, tax collecting is different back then than it is here today. Today, our tax collectors want it on your income. Back then, it was on your goods. Now, we do tax goods in this country as well, but it was predominantly import taxes. Capernaum and that area of the northern part of Galilee was between Damascus and the roads towards uh, Athens and Rome. So the main road, so Herod Antipas, who was the head of the northern part of Galilee, set up tax booths so when those caravans came, they taxed them on their goods. They were import taxes. 
and they made a lot of money and there was a lot of graft and there was a lot of things. We learn about Zacchaeus down in Jericho who was on the road that went north and south, the road that went from this road down into Africa. So Zacchaeus later on in the story of Jesus is down there and comes to the Lord as well. But Levi comes to the Lord and tax collectors were the worst. Just think of the worst people you can think about. Who are the worst people? Don't give me a... a name of an occupation, but you think of those worst people and you go, you're into that group. Religious people didn't associate with tax collectors because they were the followers of Rome. They were followers of Herod Antipas, who was not Roman, but he was a bad guy. They were in the play of that. Now, what's interesting is when Peter and Andrew and James and John in chapter one came to Christ, what did they leave? Do you remember? Fishing. They could have gone back to fishing. And in fact, after Jesus died on the cross, they went back to fishing for a while. Levi, when he left the tax booth, could not go back collecting taxes because he denied his job with Herod. He said, I am leaving. The other ones just left the dad's boat. They could come back to the dad's boat, but when he left, he left everything. And Jesus went and started eating with them. I'm coming to your house. He didn't say that in the Bible, but we know that's what happened. He says, follow me. And verse 15, as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners, (coughs) excuse me, were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Let me just ask you, I'm just going to stop here. Do you have any friends that aren't Christians? Do you have any friends you go to dinner with who aren't Christians? Do you have any friends you go to coffee with that aren't Christians? Do you do anything with people besides maybe shopping with them or maybe your attorney or your tax accountant is in a, but you only see them once a year or whatever? But I'm talking about people that you associate with. Do you have non-believers? My Let me just tell you, you need to have non-believer friends because they need to see what it means to be a believer. I gotta tell you, it's important. Hopefully, the people in the front of your Bible, my Bible over there, the names you've put down, non-believers, you are eating with them. You're meeting with them. We gotta stop thinking that our only friends need to be other believers. Now we need to associate with other believers, we need to have groups with other believers, we come to church with other believers, but let me tell you, you need to be associating with non-believers. We are not separatists in that way. We are evangelists. Go out and associate, Jesus did, and he went with the worst. And they were reclining. And the scribes of the Pharisees, Same people, when they saw that he was eating, remember, they probably didn't have the windows that were airtight. They're walking by, they see Jesus, they're right at the window looking in. And there's Jesus, no tables, they're on the ground, they're eating, they're having dinner, they're doing these things, probably laughing and doing normal things that you do at dinner. And they are very upset. When they saw, verse 16, that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, he said to his disciples, Why does he eat with the tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard this, he said to them, those who who are well have no need of a physician. Now, this is interesting. 
I think Jesus has a little sarcasm in him. I think he has, you know. Were the scribes that were always after Jesus well? I don't think so. But he kind of said, hey guys, you're okay. I'm going after the people that need help. I'm a physician, I'm going after them. If you don't want my help, move on. And it's kind of a sarcastic statement he makes here. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Later on, he calls the scribes and Pharisees all kinds of names, right? We'll see that down the road. So he's not saying that they're righteous. There's sarcasm here that's kind of saying, guys, you don't need my help. These people need my help. And what was interesting is they obviously knew they needed help because the system was broken. Talk about cheating, talk about stealing. The system of tax collecting in that country was a broken system. And can you imagine, Jesus is with all the tax collectors, and what is he talking about? Honesty, truth, himself, all these good things. He is mending a bad system. That's why I say we need to be in the system. We need to mend the system. There is a broken system in this world, and we need to, remember we talked about justice last week? There's a lot of injustice going on in this world, and we need to be a part of the people that help justice, that help people because the system is broken. Why do we do foster in this uh, foster care and adoptive services in this church? Because the system is broken. Why in the richest country in the world are there people without houses or apartments? I mean, doesn't that just in Boca Raton. In Palm Beach County, there's over 3,000 people that live in their car under bridges. 3,000 people in our little county here alone. That system is broken. That's why we have nine families living on our campus that were homeless weeks and months ago that are not homeless now. We wanna add three more because we can get up to 12 families. We're not gonna solve all 3,000, but we're gonna solve 12 at a time because the system is broken. And while we help them with the system, we can talk to them about their pain and lostness. Do you see how that works? You gotta do it all. You gotta deal with the lostness, the pain, and the brokenness. Now let's go to the third vignette. This one's about fasting. This can be a little confusing, and it it, it really is. But this is about restoration. See, fasting is something that they did to become better in their belief. This is in the Old Testament. You fasted at certain times. You came to God at certain times. And then Jesus, they said, why aren't you fasting? And Jesus says, why would you fast when everything's good? The kingdom is here. The bride and the bridegroom are here. Why are you fasting when you should be celebrating? And it's a little confusing because the question people ask me, should we fast? Do we fast now? Fasting is only mentioned about five times in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it's mentioned hundreds of times. In the New Testament, about five times. And some people believe that the kingdom, because the kingdom is here, that you don't need to fast. We need to be celebrating. We need to be worshiping. We don't need to be fasting. Others would say we still do need to be fasting. So if you ask me, should you be fasting or not fasting, that's your decision. But we don't fast the old way. Let's look at it. 
Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and the people came and said, why are John's fasting and we're fasting, but your disciples don't fast. And Jesus said, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? You don't fast at a wedding. What do you do? You eat and you celebrate. Now what's interesting is all of us have different um, traditions with marriage and with death. Your family has a tradition, my family has a tradition. We have different traditions, right? In our family, we eat when we're happy and we eat when we're sad. It's just, it is what it is. And it happens that Elizabeth's family was the same way. So we eat when we're sad. We bring mercy meals to people. You know, that's what it's called, right? We do those kind of things. Whenever we hear of somebody, we, take them, we don't take them flowers, we take them food. We think, you know, you need to food, and so it's up to you. But he goes on, he says, verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom is not here. Verse 21, no one sews a piece of unshrink cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and the worse for tear is made. We don't get this because we all buy disposable clothes. None of you own clothes that you're gonna keep a long, long, long time. And when was the last time you actually went to a tailor to have your clothes mended? It's been a long time. I mean, I used to, had to tailor. I went to a tailor last year. I thought, this is the first time I've been to a tailor in a long time. Why? Because you give the clothes away or they wear out. We have disposable clothes. Back then, their clothes were actually inherited. They were expensive, they were made from wool, and when it ripped, you fixed it. But you didn't put old wool clothes with new wool clothes because they shrunk at different levels, at different ways. And that's what he's saying here. And then he goes on, same with, you don't put new wine and old wineskins because it will burst it. You have new wine, new wineskins, old wine, old wineskins, and the same thing. He's just basically giving two examples that we cannot relate to because we use glass for our drink and we do disposable clothes, but they understood that there is a time for fasting, and he's saying there's a time not to fast. There's a restoration that has come, which is the, the understanding that the king is here. The bridegroom is here. The wedding is here. Why would you fast when I am here, Jesus said. And again, it's the restoration of our relationship to God. If you cover the lostness, the pain, the brokenness, there is restoration that comes. It's a beautiful picture. And then lastly, in the fourth one, and I want to spend a little time on this because this is very confusing about Sabbath. How do you celebrate Sabbath nowadays? One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields and making their way, and his disciples were plucking heads of grain. And again, the Pharisees were saying, oh my goodness, look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And then he gives an example when David did it. And so we kind of get off into this example of can you pull grain, ears of grain and can you eat grain, excuse me, on the Sabbath? That has no application to us today. I mean, what does that really mean? How many of you pick your food? I mean, can you pick the avocado on the Sabbath or not? Pick the orange on the, the or not? I don't know, because it's not about that. And again, it's also about re restoration. Let me, um, let me share what this is about. We are people of time and space. 
We are people of time and space. Well, Bill, that's easy to know. So how do we relate time and space together? We usually relate it in space, and we use time to just tell us when we're going to do space. When are you going to work tomorrow? I go to work at 8.30. 8.30 is just telling the time when I'm going to spend space at work. Do you see that? It's not really about 8.30, it's about what I'm doing at work. It's the space that's important. Do you see that? Where are you going on vacation? I'm going to Orlando. When are you going? Next week. Well, the next week is just telling the time about that I'm going to Orlando on vacation. The Orlando vacation is the space, and that's the important thing in the conversation. Do you see what I'm talking about here? That is regular day activity. We use time to delineate what we do in space, and time just so that we're on time. Hey, can we have coffee tomorrow? What time? Oh, 11 o'clock. The time just tells us when we're gonna do something in space. The Sabbath is the total opposite. It uses space to give us time. It uses space to give us time. The Sabbath is about celebrating time with God rather than space. Now it's interesting, go back to chapter one, verse 35. Why did you read the one verse? And rising early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. There he prayed. Now what's interesting is, it's the only time where they didn't tell us where he was. He's in Capernaum, he's at um, Levi's house. He's at Peter's mother-in-law's house. He's in the synagogue. See, because he's, they give us the place to tell us what he's gonna do. But here, they just say he's in a, he's somewhere up there, up the hill in a desolate place to spend time with the Father. See, and so what does it mean to spend time with the Father? When I ask you, are you spending time with the Father Can I tell you, I don't care where you do it. Space is unimportant. Some do it at home on their couch and they have a little coffee and they have their Bible and their journal. Some do it in the car as they're commuting. Some do it on a walk as they're walking. I don't really care because space is not important. What's important is time with God. Now you come to church, that's space. You come to worship God, that's time. You see, the fact that you come to this church is somewhat irrelevant as opposed to going to that church. If you went to that church down the street or in the next town, I don't care. I mean, I care that you come here. I'm the pastor of the church. I want you to come here. But can I tell you, you can worship God and spend time with God down there at that church as much as you can here because it's about time and the quality of time that you do it versus the space. Regular days, it's about space. But in the Sabbath, it's about time. So now we don't celebrate the Sabbath because later on we'll learn that we worship on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, not Saturday. People get all upset that we worship on Saturday, Sunday, Seventh-day Adventist, Messianic congregations, all these people, everybody's worried about Sunday versus Sabbath. And I'm telling you, it's not about space, it's about time. 
And it's not about time Saturday or Sunday, it's about time with God. Are you spending time with God? The other thing is the Sabbath is supposed to be a time of rest. It's a time when you're not occupied with space. Do you see that? You're supposed to rest. Now, if you rest here or rest there, I don't really care. You're supposed to rest so that the other six days you can have a meaningful life because without rest, we die, correct? Without rest this way, we die. Without time with God, we die. We spiritually just shrivel up. So the question is, are you spending time alone with God? Not, do you pick grain on a Saturday? I don't really care. Pick grain, don't pick grain. I don't care what you do. But are you spending time with God? And I would suggest, because it wasn't a Sabbath day space, that Jesus went up and spent time alone with the Father. If you want to really be restored out of the lostness, brokenness, and pain of your life and of this world, we have to spend time alone with God. Now, you go, is it 30 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour, 15 minutes? It's different for different people. Is it three hours once a week? Is it 15 minutes every day? You pick. Mornings tend to be better than evenings. That's a personal thing. But you need to do something in the evening as well. Maybe close your day in prayer, but everybody just falls asleep when they're reading at night. So maybe it's the morning you do it. You pick, because it's about time, not about space. Does that make sense? So when you leave here today, ask yourself, when are you spending time with God? This is so key. Not when you're spending space. Space is important. I want us to have community. I want us to have groups. That's space. To so that we can do things. Space is good. It's all good. But if you're not spending time with God, then spending time in space is meaningless. And again, people go, oh, I, I want the exact thing, exactly what I need to do. So we're gonna help you in a couple of weeks, 21 days before Easter, we're gonna do a 21-day devotional together because we're gonna help you have space and time at the same time. So we're gonna help you. We're gonna give everybody a booklet of a devotional as we lead to the road of the resurrection. God willing, all thousand of us will be working together in the same passage of scripture every day. But that'll be a unique time looking forward to the resurrection. But normally, you just pick it, get in the Bible, pick it out. If you don't know what to do, so one of our people will help you. We would love to do it, show you how to do it. It's a very simple process. And that is part of being discipled. Because discipling is me discipling you, but also me being discipled by the Father. And if I'm only discipling you, I'm only giving you what I have. And can I say that's a not very much. My job and yours, not my job as a pastor, but my job as a believer, is to receive from God so that I can give it out to other people. Now, the fact that I give it out up here is just a particular. You might give it out in a small group. You might give it out to your children. You might give it out to your spouse. Those are the particulars. But each one of us have to do it. Does that make sense? This is hard. This whole space and time thing, Sabbath and all, I just want you to realize that it's not about space. 
It's about time alone with God. And when you do that, you will have a restorative life with the Father. And that's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Now, we need to close. So, I usually don't talk about sports. I like sports. I'm not a big lover of sports. I like sports. I've talked about art the last two weeks, and people are going, guys are going, hey, can you talk about sports? (laughs) So, I'm not going to talk football. This weekend is the Australian Open, right? Okay, so we're going to talk tennis. I actually, I was getting a haircut yesterday and watched the women's final. As I was getting a haircut, it was great. And the men's final was this morning before church, which I didn't see. But the Australian Open, which is uh, one of the four Grand Slams, first one of the year. You got Wimbledon, you've got the British, I mean, French Open rather, not the British Open, that's golf, French Open, and the US Open. Anyway, about a generation ago, there were two very great men tennis players. The strongest offensive player with the serve was a guy named Boris Becker. The strongest defensive player with the return of serve at that time, about a generation ago, was Andre Agassi. Boris Becker, 140 miles an hour was his serve. Can I tell you, when something's coming at you at 140 miles an hour, you cannot do anything. You have to decide ahead of time what you're going to do. Are you going to move right? You're going to move left? You're going to stay in position. Boris Becker was annihilating everybody. And yet, Andre Agassi was the best return of server in the game, but he couldn't return Boris Becker's serve. He lost three grand slams in a row to Boris Becker. Andre Agassi, the best return of serve, couldn't return the serve. And so what he did was he started studying the films and videos. Back then, there were more films than videos, I guess, because it was a generation ago. And he realized that Boris Becker did something to telegraph his serve. In other words, to show which way. Was he going to serve it to the center, in the center line, or the outside line? And what he did was he stuck out his tongue in the direction he was going to serve. A childhood tick that he developed, we found out later, when he was five years old. And when his teacher would say, serve it to the right, he didn't know right and left. So he stuck his tongue out in the direction that he was going to serve it. And never stopped doing that, and no one ever realized it except Andre Agassi, who won 11 of the next 12 Grand Slams against him. He knew so well where he was going to serve that he purposely missed some of the serves so that no one would know that he knew right where to go. (laughs) And the one time he lost, he was sick. And so obviously, Boris Becker powered him, overpowered him. He wasn't feeling as well. He won every single time against the best server in the world because he knew where he was going to serve it. What does this mean to us? God knows you. He knows you better than you know yourself. Boris Becker said he didn't even sometimes realize that he was going to serve it to the right, but he always followed his tongue. (laughs) Always followed his tongue. My friends, Jesus Christ knows you. 
He wants to help you. He wants to be your savior. He knows it. He gets it. And there's nothing you can do to outpower him. And yes, you can live without him for a while and win that one, that one grand slam. But my friends, long term, you're going to lose it all unless you have relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.